we have all of this behavioral data, which is the most important type of data, in my opinion. We can get to know a lot about you based on what you're buying. And we can use that to go find more of you. Historically, we use demographic data as a proxy to get closer to relevancy. But now we have all of this rich purchase data that can give you signals that demographic data can't. Hello and welcome to Good Data, Better Marketing, the ultimate guide to driving customer engagement. Today's episode features an interview with Erica Reed, Manager of Data Strategy at General Mills. But first, a word from our sponsors. This podcast is brought to you by Twilio Segment. Looking for clean, reliable data that you can trust? Segment collects, cleans, and allows you to activate your data in real time across hundreds of applications and channels. Learn about how Segment can help you personalize customer experiences by visiting segment.com. Privacy laws are increasing globally, which means that we have to be compliant and creative when it comes to collecting data. In CPG, with grocers sitting between them and the end consumer, this is particularly challenging. Today, CPGs are building value exchange programs based on behavioral analytics. This gets them closer to their end consumers in the form of loyalty programs, personalized rewards, tailored recipes, and more. One brand getting in on this action is General Mills. I spoke to manager of data strategy, Erica Reed about building this value exchange, battling unknown consumer traffic, and what behavioral data tells us that demographics can't. Well, I have Erica Reed here today. Erica, I am so excited to learn from you and your journey at General Mills as a manager of data strategy. But want to learn in your own words first about your career journey. So how did you get to where you are today? Yeah, I, I feel like we're going to need a lot of time. So I'll try to be quick on some of those. I started in Dolphin Research, but again, that is a story for another day. My first job in marketing started at Cambria, which is a Minnesota company, and they make quartz countertops. And at the time, there was about five of us in the marketing department. There's probably over 100 now. And we did everything from sports marketing to mascot management. And of course, because this was about 2009 and I had a Facebook account, then I was also the social media manager because... Of course. You've been on Facebook before. You know how to do that, right? Exactly. So inadvertently, I was leading some social strategy there, which I I didn't really have the experience to do so. But also managing brand ambassadors like Cheryl Teagues. So it was a very, very interesting first dipping my toe into marketing. From there, I followed my passion to Lifetime Fitness. So I was very passionate about nutrition and fitness. And I said, you know what? I want to do this full time. So I went over there and I I joined the athletic events team. And we had a blast. I mean, we were a bunch of like-minded people. We called ourselves the BTE, which was the best team ever. Love it. We worked 40 hours a week. We also did mountain bike races and 5Ks. And we rebranded events from social media to designing the event t-shirts to CRM strategy. So again, it was a little bit of everything. I mean, we operated sort of like a small company inside of a large company, which was pretty interesting. I was a lifetime member for many years oh, and definitely appreciate it. It's, so, it's like a spa. It's it amazing. Is. Yes. And it's I so mean, good. the perks, it's pricey, but it's worth it, I think. 
I fully agree. Yeah, it's definitely a premium tier gym, yes. but like you got a pool and you get a and sauna. A sauna. <laughs> it's very important to note you get a sauna and a steam room. So, yes. yeah. So, if you don't want to work out, you just want to go to the steam and the sauna. I mean, get a massage. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Drop your kids off too. You can do that. Yeah. <laughs> So I was there for a couple of years and the team decided the athletic events department was moving to Colorado. And at that time I was like, well, I'm, I'm not ready to move Minnesota yet. So I continued my tour of corporate Minnesota, as I call it. And I headed over to Best Buy. (laughs) Yep. Check, check, check. Yep. (laughs) I have not been to Target. I was wondering, I was going to ask you the (laughs) follow-up. Not Not yet. yet. (laughs) (laughs) But I tried marketing operations over there. And looking back, what's interesting is it was a lot of data strategy, but it was titled marketing operations. Yep. And I was hired to do the operations for the wedding registry platform. And yeah, I know eyebrows because it doesn't exist today. We ran into a lot of challenges because at the time, this was about 2012 or 14, the data was located in multiple data warehouses. And so we couldn't connect the consumer experience. So whether you had a Geek Squad plan or you had just bought a TV or you just created a wedding registry, we couldn't we couldn't connect it. Mm. So it was very challenging and but also very exciting and also got to be a part of filming a wedding registry commercial in the middle of a Best Buy in the middle of the night. That was quite exciting. <laughs> Any highlights? Was there like a flash mob? What was oh, the there vibe? was a band. <laughs> Go ahead. Nice. Know, we had to hire the actors. I mean, it was it was incredible. But after about a year and a half, they decided to scrap the program. And at that time, I was really jonesing to get back to the strategic side of things. So I moved over to the agency life. So I moved to the dark side. And you gotta uh, get that well-rounded experience, you yes. know? Yeah. Yes. I joined Olson, which is now called ICF Next. And I was there for about four years. I worked in loyalty and CRM strategy on brands like Wyndham Hotel Group, Luxottica, Smuckers. And I think we all were starting to feel the pendulum swing from brands going in-house. So there was a ton of leaning into agencies, then it was swinging back to in-house. I think it is a constant swing. Back and forth every five years or so. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. Yes. So I, I started to poke around a little bit and see what was out there. I also had had a couple of kids by this point. So I was like, agency life was just too demanding for raising two kids under two. It's a hustle. Yes. Yes. And so I had a recruiter actually reach out from General Mills. And it was for this data and analytics role, which I was like, no, that's not me. I said, I'm not an analyst. And they were like, perfect. That We don't want an analyst. We want a, a strategist. And so... I started General Mills at that time, which was March 9th of 2020. Perfect timing. What a time. (laughs) What a time. Manufacturing comes to a halt. Grocery stores are closed. Perfect. Yes. 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 But it was actually a really great time as consumers shifted from eating out to eating in their home. Yep. So it was a fantastic time to join. And since then, I've thoroughly been enjoying the ride. And maybe it's because it's quite challenging. So that's when I started at General Mills. Very cool. So you've had a little bit of every kind of marketing experience from in-house to agency side, a ton of different industries that you've seen so far and now in CPG. Yes. 
So the hardest of them all. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited to get into that. Yeah. We're going to talk challenges today. So I'm sure, you know, you're going to highlight some of those for us. I want to kick off talking about some of the big trends. Some of these are probably cross industry, but I'm sure now that you've been in CPG for three or more years, you're starting to really see a lot of these macro trends impacting your industry specifically. So are there any ones that you would highlight, especially as it relates to consumer engagement? Yeah, as it relates to CPG specifically, we've really seen that shift from in-store to online grocery shopping. And with that comes a lot of changes, a lot of changes. And so we're constantly testing and learning. And now we're battling for eyeballs on the digital shelf versus the physical shelf. And also with our biggest customers, which we call our retailers, our customers, and then our consumers of the people consuming our product. Our biggest customers now, you know, have their own retail media network. So the struggle is real and it's expensive and it's constantly changing. In addition to that, now, post-pandemic, people are constantly looking for convenience. So selling CPG direct to consumer is not that convenient and it's expensive. Right. The only time it might make sense is when there's a separate reason. Maybe it's a limited time box flavor that we have for Cheerios or Mm -hmm. for the Dunkaroos relaunch. That was a direct to consumer as a event. 90s kid, I can really appreciate that. Yes. And now my kids are into Dunkaroos. I mean, it is coming full circle. Full circle. Love yes. <laughs> yes. And maybe it's a subscription too, that that could make sense for D2C. And for most of our brands, it doesn't. However, for Ratio, it does. Ratiofood.com. Check it out. <laughs> There's a subscription. Shout option. out. <laughs> okay. I'm not familiar, but I will truly check it out right now. Yes. Yes. Good. And also the shipping side of things. So that's where it gets really expensive. And if it's not arriving at your house within three days, then the consumer is going to go elsewhere. Yep. So it's that shift to digital purchasing. And then it's also that convenience factor in every facet of our lives. Not just as, if, as I think as a marketer, it's just me personally too. What am I doing to change my behavior so that things are a lot more convenient? Yeah, I was talking about this yesterday, relevance and convenience kind of being at the heart of the consumer experience. And that's kind of like how you need to be able to shift your strategy. And a lot of, I think what you're speaking to is talking about consumer demands for personalization, making sure that you're speaking directly to them and consumer demands for channel of choice. I want to purchase this in a store or I want to purchase this via a subscription and making sure that you can keep up with that. Yes. And being there when they are ready to make that choice. And that's what I think gets complicated is it's showing up digitally. It's showing up in store. It's showing up online. It's showing up in your email when the consumer wants it to and with the right content that they are looking for. It's really hard to do. It's really hard (laughs) to build a meaningful journey that makes sense to an individual, not necessarily like in a household, an account, et cetera, like getting down to the individual level, really, really hard. Kind of touched a little bit on the consumer demands that I mentioned, but are there any consumer behaviors that you might want to highlight as it relates to CPG in the past few years that have kind of changed the game? For us in CPG, I think as a whole, it's not just CPG. It's consumers 
are not as readily able to divulge their data. And I think this comes for a couple of reasons. One is like, at the beginning, it was a data free-for-all out there. And everybody was just like, give me all the data, give it to me, and I'll just take it all and I'll store it somewhere and I'll do something with it at some point. And I'll spend a lot of money on storing it somewhere and not know how to do it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Very expensive and not very strategic, but everybody felt the pressure and it was like, you have to collect the data or else. Amazon's doing it. Yeah. Amazon's doing it. We can (laughs) do it too. And so I think part of the shift that I've seen is consumers readily divulging information to brands. So while a consumer isn't that interested in giving you their data, they will, however, do it for the right value exchange. So whether that value be dollars or perhaps convenience, like we talked about. And I like to take the Kroger loyalty program into consideration for this because you become a member and you get value back. And all you have to do is scan your card and it's really convenient. Love it. And then on the flip side, Kroger gets all of this really rich data back. In fact, they made $1 billion last year selling this data at an aggregate, of course. Okay. They have their own data science company called 8451. And they have all of this data that they just put to use and sell to other CPGs. You are literally blowing my mind right now. Okay. I didn't realize that that was such a monetizable portion of the grocery market. Okay. Yes. So you get consumers understanding there's this fantastic value exchange and it's really great for Kroger too. So it's sort of a win-win. And that's why people, whether they know it or not, are willing to give that data. It comes back to that value. So In my opinion, I think that if brands continue to put the consumer first, they're going to continue that relationship, but it's understanding what that consumer wants and what that consumer wants is constantly changing. It is. It is a moving target. That Mm -hmm. is for sure. I think some of what you're talking about is related to two many forms of data, actually, but somebody giving you data through a loyalty program, somebody giving you data through an app and kind of like their behavior, somebody giving you data through a survey, all of those are labeled different things. Zero-party data, first-party data, third-party data. And so I guess I'm interested in learning a little bit more about that from you is how are you seeing, to your point, consumers' demands are ever-changing, but it seems like we're on the time of privacy at this exact moment. Yes. How are privacy demands coming from consumers impacting the way that you and your team do your work? Yeah, I think that's there's two parts to that. It's the privacy regulations that are coming from the government. And then there's what the consumer hears. Maybe it's not directly, but they hear it on the news and they're like, oh, okay, so I'm going to stop giving my data because it's really important and it's my personal data. So where I think I'm seeing that in two different ways is one is acquiring new consumers through just an email acquisition program. Because what we found is when we know you and we can build that relationship with you, we get more out of you in the grocery store. So totally, we see the value. And so it's understanding, okay, what are consumers willing to give us or what do we need to give consumers in order to get their email address? And it it comes back to being really relevant to that consumer. So for example, pillsbury.com, the biggest thing that we offer is recipe inspiration. 
But recipe inspiration for me is different than it is for you. And so we have to be really precise in the questions that we're asking upon registration in order to tailor a customized, personal, relevant experience to you. So understanding what that looks like and being able to do it legally is tricky. Yeah. Tricky. And our our legal department is very, very strict. And we follow whatever the laws are in the most strict state, California. Yep. Uh, we follow that for everybody, which is probably best practice. So it's hard to collect data from consumers, both from a consumer perspective and from a legal perspective. So there's a dance there. One way that we did it strategically was just asking a simple question in registration. Who do you cook for? I love it, it. Yourself? Is it your partner? Is it kids? And then we combine that with understanding age. And then we can make some assumptions on the type of content. So we're not creating thousands of pieces of content per email. And we can really do one to many in a sense. On the flip side, for things that the consumer maybe isn't as knowledgeable on is, sure, there's all these restrictions. Let's take California again, for example. And we partner with Fetch Rewards. So float with me for a second. Fetch Rewards, if you know what Fetch Rewards is, or if you aren't, I'll I'll give you a little spiel. Yeah. A points-based reward system for scanning receipts into an app. And Fetch has made it incredibly engaging with haptics and just different points for simply scanning a receipt, which will get you to come back and scan additional receipts. We've partnered with Fetch. And we now get all of Fetch's purchase data into our systems. We also have a loyalty program within Fetch called Good Rewards. And we are rewarding consumers for purchasing General Mills products. And we also get all of this purchase data. We get 63 million rows of data a day from Fetch. I know. It's insane. Yeah. 6 million daily active users, 18 million monthly active users, and it's growing. Wow. So we get an idea because we're CPG, it's really difficult for us to see anything closed loop. We'll run a campaign over here. We have no idea what happened because we're not in the retail, which is my point earlier, why CPG is so hard. Mm -hmm. So this partnership with Fetch has actually been really interesting for us because we can start to understand people's purchase behavior as it relates to marketing campaigns that we're doing which is fantastic. But back to the privacy point. So California, for example, has all of these really strict privacy laws now. And how that's impacting us with Fetch is that if you're a California resident, we're no longer able to see who you are. We can see at an aggregate what your purchase behavior is from a California resident, but we no longer get your email address associated with your purchase data, which then doesn't help with our paid media targeting strategy. I think what you're talking about is known and unknown users. It's, it's third-party data and making sure that you need to aggregate that together. Really hard to understand exactly how to build a customer profile. Yes. Yes. We spent, I think, six months alone trying to define what a known user at General Mills is. I think we finally got it, though. But our digital and technology friends had one idea of a known user, and that would have been any anonymous person who has ever hit any of our sites and is associated with an ID. And then way over here on the other email program or email strategy side of things, unknown user is only somebody who we can contact and build that one-to-one direct relationship with. 
And so now we have this really good understanding of who a known user is. And we're able to categorize that or at least put them in our CDP in a way that makes sense to say, these are the people that we know. This is a unified visual of people. So if they're coming to Pillsbury.com and they're a Fetch member, they're a Good Rewards member, they're now unified and we can say, hey, that Pillsbury campaign, what did it do? Did it drive any purchases in store? And we can see that all because it's now unified. I love it. You close the loop. Yes. It's pretty fantastic. And we're just getting started. So we're, we just got our CDP stood up. And so we're, we're in the infant stages of our CDP. We just came out with a book and the, the data maturity curve, perhaps you're early on and kind of developing some of your first use cases, but you're getting to real time personalization in the next year or so. Yes, absolutely. It's definitely an iterative process. I think that we talk about that a lot on the show is it can feel really overwhelming when you're starting this journey because it feels like you immediately need to get to Amazon level of, you know, like right. every page is personalized and they know exactly who you are and have all of your purchase history and they do it so quickly, but it's really, really hard to do and it's iterative and it takes a while and that's exactly the way that it should be and that's normal. You're talking about things that are really hard. You've mentioned the trickiness of all of this a couple of different times. We've put out a couple of words like unknown traffic and identity resolution and customer profiles and things like that. And I'm wondering on your journey, what's been the biggest challenge towards customer engagement, consumer engagement? Hmm. I think the biggest challenge thus far is getting a sticky user as I like to call them. So getting someone first off to say, yep, I'm going to give you my email address. That is hard in itself. There are many different tactics that you can go after and and you can pay a small amount to get an unsticky user and you can pay a very large amount to get maybe that return on investment over a few years. The biggest challenge for me is understanding where people are coming in, where we're acquiring people, how much we're acquiring people for. And then what does that behavior look like? throughout time, let's say, let's just call it 12 months. And then looking at how much they spend with us during that 12 months. Yep. And then being able to tie back how much they're spending to acquisition source to then drive that total ROI, at least in within 12 months. But keeping people engaged, I think, is pretty difficult when we're not selling directly to consumers. What's really interesting is that what you're talking about in in the language of tech and in the world that I live in is LTV and CAC ratio. What's your customer acquisition cost? And then what's the lifetime value of your customer? But you're you're talking about the same thing in CPG, which is you want to understand how much it costs to acquire a new customer, what channel they're coming from, and then how much they're spending over a year, five years, et cetera, and making sure that that ROI is there. And it's just fun to note that, you know, across every industry, it's the challenges are really similar. We might have different names for it, but they're really similar. That's why I like to go to conferences that aren't necessarily CPG because it doesn't have to be CPG and you can get a lot of insightful strategies from retail or just grocery stores in general. So it's, it's super interesting. I think one of the other things that I would say on the challenge And we started to figure this out in the last year, but a big challenge we were seeing is we were getting a ton of site traffic to Pillsbury.com and BettyCrocker.com. 
I won't say how much, but a large amount. And big millions, <laughs> perhaps. I'm gonna I'm gonna say it's large, y'all. You know, think in the millions or more. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. So <laughs> we we wanted to find out a little bit more about those unknown people, but we didn't really have a way. We partnered with Zeta Global and they have a proprietary data platform and they were able to pixel our sites and say, of these unknown users to General Mills, if we compare them to our General Mills, so let me back up. We sent them our list of our known users, again, a large number, (laughs) and pixeled our site and said, all right, compare them, compare our known users to our unknown users. Tell us a little bit more about these people because our acquisition messaging and strategy might change a little bit because we have the brand over here saying millennial moms, Hispanic households, we have to acquire them. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. Us and everyone else in the United States wants to acquire these people. So let's find something again, as it going back to the value exchange, something that really matters to these people. But what we found was so interesting in that the majority of our unknown users who are hitting the site are older women without kids and household, aka wow. grandmothers. Of course. Of course. Yeah. Pat is out there and she's definitely interacting with Betty Crocker. Shout Absolutely. out to my grandma. Yes. And it makes sense. So then when you take a step back and you're like, okay, all right. So we cannot lose those people. They are our loyalists. But also, how do we change what we're doing to attract a different type of person? And that's been challenging just to change the mindset, but also really enlightening to say, look at this data that we have. Look at these people who are hitting the site. Look at what content they're consuming, where they're transacting. 25%, this is a side note that's really hilarious to me, 25% of our known consumers have transacted at Christopher and Banks. Now that just tells you a lot in itself, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I just love that. So we've learned a lot over the last year and we're starting to shift and understand our consumers because it comes down to being relevant to our people. So interesting. And something that just kind of like came up for me when you're going through this is it sounds like based off of a lot of that insight that you're gaining, are you creating lookalike audiences and then, you know, feeding that into your channels? And how is that impacting some of the tactics and strategies that you're deploying? In particular, I'm imagining it's probably reducing your customer acquisition costs with some of this newfound insight. Yes, I think it is. Where my team comes in is we have consumer experience strategists and we have data scientists. So we surface all of this and we almost consult as a central unit to other parts that say, hey, Use this piece of data. It's really incredible. On the other side of it is our paid media teams. So this is where we're finding and using lookalike audiences because we have to get to scale. We don't have enough owned data in order to hit the entire United States, as I think most people don't. So that's when we use lookalike audiences. And we're using lookalike audiences based on purchase data. That's our our biggest thing is we have all of this behavioral data, which is the most important type of data, in my opinion. We can get to know a lot about you based on what you're buying. And we can use that to go find more of you. 
And that's where we're using a lot of lookalike audiences. Very interesting. And probably suppressing ads from people that you just acquired as customers, which is a cost saver too. Yep. Very cool. I asked this question to people that have like a house of brands and you have what, over a hundred at General Mills. Do you bring together data and insights from multiple different brands to help create those customer profiles? And how is that impacting some of the tactics and strategies? What are some of those unique interactions that you see happening? I don't know if you have any things you want to share about that. So historically at General Mills, our media budgets have been very siloed and they are brand by brand basis. So doing any type of cross portfolio paid media or branding has not been as successful. It's just too complicated with the budgeting. However, when we launched our loyalty program with Good Rewards in the Fetch app is when we've now been able to drive that cross-portfolio purchasing. We set out on a goal to get individuals buying four or more of our brands as Good Rewards members, and we have surpassed that. So for context, we launched our Good Rewards program in July of last year. And our goal for the year was to acquire a million people. And again, I can't say numbers, but I will say we surpassed our goal in three months. Damn. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so that was- The bar moves. The bar gets higher. I know. (laughs) It always just gets higher, you know? Yes. And so that was one goal. And then getting those users- I think part of the Good Rewards program helped consumers understand our portfolio brands because most people look at General Mills and they say they name like four cereals because we put the big G on every cereal box that we have. But you may not know that we sell Nature Valley, we sell Totinos, we sell Yoplait, Gogurt, Betty Crocker, Pillsbury. I mean, the list is endless and these are household names. And so driving cross portfolio is important for us but it has been complicated due to budgets. And that is why we launched or partly a reason why we launched a loyalty program to help with that. So interesting. I mean, the fast work that you've already done is clearly going to make such an impact in the future of that cross sell. Yeah, it's pretty fun. Very cool. you about because you you know you mentioned you consult with other teams you make sure that they are using this data that your team is in these insights that your team is surfacing you're really like the center of excellence in a lot of ways so how would you define good data what does that look like for you at general mills so it's a good question i get it all the time and it's tough to answer my answer typically is we need the goldilocks of data just the right amount. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Email address is incredibly important to drive conversion outside of our owned platforms. And what I mean by that is like, we've got these CRM programs with our bigger brands, but we don't have it for a hundred brands. And so Mm -hmm. we need email address to unify that consumer, understand their purchase behavior, and then target them in paid media. So that to me is really important. And then it's really understanding what we need. I don't need your favorite color. And I'd argue 
I also don't need your demographic data. Hmm. Controversial take, perhaps, but I like this. Yeah. Yes. And this is the example I give is my neighbor, my neighbor who lives right next door to me. She's a white female. She's the same age as me. She's married. She has two kids, boy and girl. I have boy and girl. And I guarantee our grocery receipts look very different. Very different. Our pantries are couldn't be more opposite. She's a vegetarian. You wouldn't know that from demographic data. So I do think that historically, and this is as it relates to food buying and CPG. Historically, we use demographic data as a proxy to get closer to relevancy. Mm-hmm. But now we have all of this rich purchase data that can give you signals that demographic data can't. I love that. You're not making assumptions anymore. You're actually know what somebody's eating, what you know is on that receipt, and how that is a part of your portfolio and your strategy. Exactly. What people are buying, what they aren't buying, what are they buying in addition to what you have. So for example, we learned in a performance marketing test that people really like Pillsbury and Old El Paso. And so when we think about the cross portfolio marketing, we did a little bit of testing. And again, it's very complicated. But once Old El Paso saw that, they're like, oh yeah, I'll, I'll throw some more money in the pot to advertise with Pillsbury and save, save dollars. It's the same consumer. 80% of people in the United States have a General Mills product in their pantry. Yeah, of course. So it's just about growing that, the number of products that you have in your pantry and, and ensuring that we stay in your pantry too. My mind immediately went to the recipes on the Pillsbury site and what are the crossover El Paso and mm. Pillsbury recipes. And immediately I was like, how are we doing a croissant taco? But yes. that, I don't know if that sounds right to other people. I don't think so either. Yeah, it didn't hit. Like it was an idea and I don't think it's going to stick. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh boy, here we go. This is yes. what happens when we do, you know, 4 p.m. interviews is my brain is is really getting in the creative juices flowing. <laughs> I love it. I love it. This is where we get goofy and I think that's the content people are here for. But it is. Well, you know, at least I hope it is because <laughs> there are bad jokes bound from me typically on this show. Can't wait. You've mentioned a lot of awesome examples so far, but if there's any other programs or tactics, strategies that you wanted to highlight with some of the ways that you're using a lot of this good data that your team is gathering and then sharing across the organization. Yeah, I think the biggest thing that we're starting to do is get to be a little bit more predictive or prescriptive in our media targeting, whereas historically we've been pretty descriptive. It's like, okay, give me all of the people who aren't buying Nature Valley in the last 12 months and let's hit them with an ad. And sometimes that works, but we're now starting to be able to be a little bit more efficient and effective. Have the right message at the right time with the right audience based on their purchase behavior. That's something new for us that we've just started launching and it's pretty exciting. I like it. Yeah. Instead of using some of that stale data that perhaps has been in your CRM for a little bit of time and downloading a spreadsheet and uploading it to a different system. And we've all been there. Yes. Not the best. People are still there. (laughs) A lot of people are still there. If you are still there, please know there is a light. There is a way out. Erica's here to show you the way. (laughs) 
think that it's Kaylee that's here to show you the way. I don't know. I'm just here asking the questions. You're the one that's doing it every day. <laughs> I'm going to flip this now and talk about any inspirations that you gain. So who do you think is doing it right in terms of consumer engagement and experience? I have always put DSW on a pedestal. That is, wait, I literally interviewed the CMO of DSW yesterday. No. Yeah. That oh is so gosh. weird that you just said. Yes. 100%. 100%. I have always I done it. this. And, the, and these are the reasons why. So they connect to purpose with souls for souls and reward you with points for donating. I just <laughs> learned this and it's the coolest thing. Yes. I love that you're bringing this up. Side note, my son is five years old. We went to DSW on Sunday. He needed a new pair of light-up shoes. His old light-up shoes got a hole in them. And there's a box right when you walk in that says, donate your shoes. And so I had this amazing opportunity to teach my son what it meant to donate his shoes. And he took the shoes off of his feet and he put them in the bin. That is so cute. And at five years old, I mean, that's very, very difficult for a five-year-old to do. But I did it and I had points in my account immediately. So number one is connecting to purpose while also rewarding you as an individual. They let you choose how you want to be rewarded. The program is easy to understand. It's clear what I've earned and what I need to spend to get to that next reward. And then additionally, just this weekend, I received an email introducing a new perk from DSW called Big Moments. This new perk. I love this. You talked about this, didn't you? Yeah, they just launched it like a week ago. Yes, I just got this email. But I mean, it is genius because they are collecting all of this ripe data that they're then going to be able to personalize your experience based on all of this relevant stuff. You're having a kid, oh, customer for life. You are running a marathon, you're going to go through three pairs of shoes. I mean, it is so genius. So absolutely, DSW. I love that. Yeah, I was talking to her and and because I do think retailers have really cool loyalty programs in so many ways because they have such a human connection with their customers that it's just like a lot of inspiration can be gained. So that's very funny that that literally 24 hours ago, (laughs) very big coincidence. (laughs) Do you have a favorite campaign or even a piece of data that you would want to talk about? I don't think I have a favorite piece of data. It's more or less a type. And that goes back to behavior, behavior data. I think it's out with the demographic data in with the behavior data. I think this is so smart because demographic data is just, it feels biased. It feels like it's living in the past and this is the real signal for the way that people are acting and gives you a lot of rich insights to be able to make strategy on. Yes, 100%. So we talked about trends at the very beginning. We're going to talk about trends again, but future looking. So do you have any hunches for trends on the horizon as it relates to data over the next six to 12 months? I don't think it's a hunch. I think everyone's talking about it and it goes back to privacy. Where this is interesting is 
you know, we got this new CDP and our executive leaders are all about data enrichment. Let's, okay, we've got this place now, let's go enrich it with data. But what's really difficult is, A, you don't know what you need to collect until you test and learn. And B, there's a lot of regulations around what we can get. And so we don't want to just go out and buy data to buy data. That's putting us back 10 years ago Yep. when we were just all hoarding it. And so I would say that there's going to be additional privacy restrictions. And then additionally, especially in the food category, what we're seeing in EUAU is the type of food you're marketing to consumers has to have a certain nutritional level or you can't do it. You can't market to people. So it's going to be really important to continue to drive those one-to-one relationships in order to even have a voice to our consumers. Because a lot of the stuff, I mean, haagen are you kidding? It's incredible. It is not low in sugar. <laughs> yeah. It's not necessarily good for you, but it's no. amazing. It's delicious and it's, it's, it's a treat. so good. Oh, the best ice cream out there. I like that you mentioned this one-to-one as well, if I may. How do you differentiate one-to-one versus household? I imagine that's Mm. a challenge with folks that might have different diets that live within the same household, but you're trying to market to an audience of one. How do you think about tackling that? Yeah, so for our own platforms, we talk on a one-to-one basis. So we have their email address and we talk to them specifically. We are talking to a household. And then when we think about paid media targeting, we're also taking at an individual level and finding lookalikes to them. So it continues to be at that individual level. For our owned platforms, this is where I think the the nurture part is so important. We need to continue to understand our consumers. We need to continue to deliver that relevant information. And in order to do that, we have to ask the right questions Maybe it's they're gluten-free or maybe they have a peanut allergy or something like that, where we then apply that attribute to that consumer and then we ensure that our communications go forward, don't have peanut recipes in them or whatever it might be. So nurturing that one-to-one relationship is really important as we build those direct relationships and then also just understanding at an individual level when we do paid media targeting because it's there their potential purchase behavior, but you're onto something there and that they're probably buying for the house. So it's tricky. It goes back to it being very tricky. All of this is really hard to do. It's yes. really hard to do. Yes. That's why I have a lot of respect for people in your position that are managing a lot of this and making sure that you are communicating this effectively throughout the organization because it is leading you to make better decisions and drive efficiencies across an enterprise, which yeah. is Really, really challenging, but drives real business impact. Last question for you. Yes. What are any steps or recommendations that you might have for somebody that's looking to up-level their consumer engagement strategies? I think there's only one answer, and it's CX strategy. Hire a consumer experience strategist. They will ground their recommendations in data to build a strategy using the technology available to them. It's the secret sauce, as my boss likes to call it. And part of CX strategy is prioritizing consumer research. You have to hear from your consumer, your consumer. What is important to them? What do they expect from you? Don't assume just because it works for someone or has worked in the past, it's going to continue to work. 
And it's also okay to do this in a scrappy way. I know not everybody has the budgets to do this. It's social media is one big research platform. Just ask your consumers, make it simple. Send them a survey and think about your consumer as a whole. Get a journey map because your strategy and social can't be siloed. It's got to be human. It's got to be consumer focused, human focused, understand their challenges and be there for them when they need you. And you can do that with CX strategy. I love it. Keep it simple and have somebody who's really driving strategy around the consumer and prioritizing them, keeping them first. Yes. And lastly, test and learn. Fail forward fast. Do not make a big production about testing. Just constantly be testing, always learning, because change is happening faster today than it was yesterday. And if you aren't changing with your consumer, your consumer is going to find a brand that is. You need to up the bar. The bar is always changing. You know, when you hit a million in three months, the bar is going to get raised. Right. Exactly. (laughs) I love it. Erica, I had a lot of fun. I learned a ton. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. This was really fun. This podcast is brought to you by Twilio Segment. In today's digital-first economy, being data-driven is no longer aspirational. It's necessary. Segment's leading customer data platform empowers every team with good data. From marketing and product to engineering and analytics, Segment unifies data silos into a single view of the customer. It allows teams to make data-driven decisions and personalize customer engagement in real time, all with one single platform to collect and manage your data. Curious to find out why over 20,000 businesses trust Segment to be their data foundation? You can learn more by visiting segment.com.